Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Chicks on top. It's great to be back. We're here today with Dr. Liz Powell. They are a clinical therapist. They do all sorts of work around being non-binary, you know, queer, uh, non-monogamy. They're they're absolutely fantastic. And uh, so we brought them on the show. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's so good to be here again. I it's been so long, but I'm so glad we're reconnecting. <laughs> Me too. Me too. So you're a therapist. You've recently, uh, well, within the last year or so, moved across country. Yes. And how has it been reestablishing a practice? Well, so, you know, the thing is, because of how I've always done my work, I've always had video chat or telehealth as a component of work with my clients for ever since I started having a private practice back when I was still in the army. And so my clients were already accustomed to seeing me on video chat for some of their sessions during the pandemic. It was all of them. And so I just kept all my West coast clients when I moved the times that I was available shifted some, but most of my West coast clients wanted to stay with me. I am. So this is, Here's, here's the thing about me, right? I have ADHD and uh, part of ADHD for me is that sometimes big important tasks are really icky. So I struggle to do them. And so I have like semi started the process of applying for my Pennsylvania license and I've been here a year and that's how far I've gotten. And like, it is definitely in my planner as one of the things I need to work on, but it is stalled hard. So like theoretically in the near future, I will get a Pennsylvania license and who knows brains, right? Brains. <laughs> Well, and you bring it up. So this is following a, a whole series of interviews with queer therapists from around the world. And I don't think I've interviewed one person who hasn't had some form of neurodivergence or your brain doesn't function quite right. What is it about not being neurotypical that drives people into to looking to become therapists, psychology, that end of things? Well, I mean, I think there's a there's a stereotype that isn't entirely untrue that people become therapists to figure out what is fucked up about them, like why they are fucked up or to figure out their fucked up families, right? Like right. you have trauma and, or you have weirdness. And so you go into therapy because you've already had to figure out how to navigate the world. And like, you might as well fix other people since apparently you're not fixable, which is like a very ableist framework uh, and not one that I subscribe to anymore. But like, I think very much a driving factor in a lot of people going into the therapy world is that there are people who have struggled with, dealing with this world, with being in this world, with their own brains doing weird stuff to them. And because they are in that a lot, they often turn to that as what they want to do with their time. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, absolutely debatable. But 
<laughs> that I think is a part of it. That explains why I transferred into psychology as an undergrad. Like I had to right? figure out what the fuck was wrong with my brain. Uh, there we are. That's so many of us. Look, <laughs> the stories I could tell from grad school. Oh my God. Hilarious. So, you know, the weird psychologist that provided personality disorder diagnoses for Amber Heard during that horrific mm-hmm. trial, she was in my intern class and the stories I could tell about her <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. I think all of us who who worked on that end of things is like, yeah, if you knew what went on behind the scenes, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. And I say that as somebody who worked in politics, psych is the same way. Yeah, yeah. It's there are a lot of there were a lot of folks in my grad class who I was like, I maybe what you need is more treatment, not to be a therapist. Like there's this thing in therapy world that we talk about, which is the wounded healer. You know, Irving mm-hmm. Yalom talked a lot about the wounded healer. And I absolutely believe that you do not to be, you don't have to be like fully healed or perfect or enlightened mm-hmm. to be a therapist. And I think if you're bleeding out, that is not the time to be doing first aid on others, right? Like fill your own cup first. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I live with a mother who was a therapist and uh, the longer I, I get, the more I get to know her, the more I understand what drove her into therapy. And I question if her success was um, the fact that she took Medicaid and VA insurance rather oh, than. Yeah. Cause if you take those, nobody takes those. Like, yeah. You'll get tons of clients just by taking those because they pay you shit. Like here's, here's the other thing about being a therapist right now. So there's a new thing on Twitter where a bunch of people will reply to therapists and say like, are you actually providing therapy or a luxury service? Because therapist rates, especially out of pocket tend to be fairly high. Mm -hmm. The thing is as a therapist, you can't do 40 hours of therapy week or uh, a therapy work a week. It is impossible. You would fall apart. Like it is just way too much. Uh, And so most of us are seeing at most 20 clients a week. Uh, And when you take insurance, insurance pays you very little. When I lived in San Francisco, which has some of the highest insurance reimbursement rates in the country, the highest rate you could get was $120 per session. And the like kind of average going rate for a therapist at that time was 250. And that was the highest rate. Stuff like TRICARE pays about 60 a session, uh, no matter what your credentials. And that's for the highest credentials. If you have lower credentials than like a a doctorate, often they'll pay you less. So it might be like 50 or 40 bucks. Medicare, Medicaid often tend to pay 30 to 50 bucks per session. And if you think about like trying to survive on 15 hours a week, because if you're working with Medicaid clients... These are often people who are experiencing a lot more societal oppression and marginalization. Mm -hmm. They're often dealing with periods of homelessness, periods where they can't access food. They're experiencing a lot more violence and trauma. So those sessions are more challenging than the ones with the folks who can pay you $350 a session, whose lives are generally fairly secure, but like they're dealing with stuff that is still valid to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing a ton of much more taxing work for almost no pay. And the entire system is completely broken. Like (laughs) the entire system is completely broken. It is. It is. One of the things I've seen a lot of therapists posting lately is it feels like they're offering a cup of water to people who are in a wildfire. Oh, yeah. So- yeah. <laughs> Look, it's <laughs> so, so, okay. Uh, unlike many psychologists, I have actually, or therapists in general, I have a very rare experience, which is being in the middle of the potentially traumatizing situation that my clients are in at the same time that they're in it. 
I was a military psych. I was in the army for five years. I did a a deployment to Afghanistan. So I was in there on the post. If we took incoming fire, I was there when it happened, right? I was not going on patrols. I wasn't like going out on convoys. So I was not experiencing anywhere near the level of threat or danger as the folks who were doing those kinds of jobs. But like I was in the trauma with them. Most therapists, when they're working with people who are experiencing trauma, are not in the middle of that same trauma. If you're working with someone who has been sexually assaulted, you're usually not doing that work like a week or two after you were sexually assaulted. If you're working with someone who was shot, you're not usually doing that right after you were shot. So COVID as a pandemic is creating this mass trauma. And it's combined with this mass societal level gaslighting and pressure to move towards denial instead of actual grief and grieving. And therapists are absorbing all of it while also being in it. And it is, it is the hardest time I've had in my career. You know, I would volunteer for a three-year deployment to Afghanistan again, rather than continue having to do this. It is the hardest work I've ever had to do because so much of what's happening, you know, there's COVID, there's the attacks on trans folks. A lot of my clients are trans or non-binary. There are the, there's the pending repeal of Roe versus Wade. Like a lot of my folks have uteruses. And I sit in these sessions and we're all just sitting there going like, this is horrifying. What do we do? And I'm like, you're right. This is horrifying. I don't know what we do. I think what we do is feel when we can feel what we do is like find things to bring us joy when we need a break from those feelings. And we try to find a balance there and we try to take care of ourselves and our communities and those around us as much as we can. But it is it is a uniquely challenging time to be a therapist. And almost every therapist I know is full and has been full for two years at this point. So we're all on wait list. A lot of us are seeing fewer clients than we used to because the work is so much more taxing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the before times, you would have a client and you have a problem you're working on. You're able to make progress on it, keep working through it, focus on that. Now with new shit happening all the time, it's like every session is just like, what's the next fire? What's the new thing that broke? What's the new attack on these people? And we aren't able to do much more significant work because it's just constantly new trauma after new trauma, after new trauma, after new attack, after new attack. And it is, it is hard. It is really, really hard. And I think there is a lot of validity to the argument that like therapists charging high fees is a big problem for, for access to care. And I think that a lot of people who make those arguments don't understand Mm -hmm. how taxing the job is, how detrimental it is to all of us. I know several therapists who have had to be hospitalized during the pandemic for psychiatric reasons because of the weight of all of this trauma that they are trying to support people through. It is not a normal time. It is not a time where, we can have a bunch of $10 clients that we see or a bunch of pro bono clients because we are holding on by a thread too. And a lot of us are struggling financially as well. Like a lot of things that would bring us income at other times aren't happening. We're seeing fewer clients. Like it's all just a huge pressure on everybody. And I think we're all latching out at each other because horizontal violence is much easier Mm -hmm. and we can't, the ability that any of us has to enact meaningful structural change at this point is fairly limited. You know, we tell people to vote and everybody should vote. And I don't know that there are elected officials right now who are willing to do what it would take to make meaningful change in this country. And so it's this case of 
helplessness and powerlessness all around us. And when faced with that, some people turn, it's a fight flight response, right? So some people lash out at each other because it's who's around and who they can have an effect on. Some people, they try to flee, which I'm seeing in this like profound denial. This like, nothing's happening. Everything's fine. Everything's great. I'm going to go to a club with 3000 people and no masks in the middle of this giant COVID surge because the map is still green on the CDC website. And like some people are turning to freeze, which is this like, just kind of sitting in your home unable to do anything, just staring at a TV screen, staring at your phone, doom scrolling for hours on Twitter. It's this, it's this time where the things that we would do to react to this kind of problem don't work and there aren't great alternatives. And sitting with our own powerlessness is very, very hard for a lot of us. We want to believe that there's some way we can enact meaningful change. And like, maybe there is, and maybe there isn't. So how do we support each other? How do we become communities among this that support each other as communities that develop alternative systems and stop waiting for this giant structure that wants to kill us all to stop wanting to kill us? Exactly. Exactly. And I think you touched on a couple of really important points there uh, that I kind of want to delve into. First is this constant attack on the trans community. You fo- One of the oh, focus God. points of your your work is trans and non-binary folks. You are non-binary yourself. Yep. Um, so, and I, and I don't think that people who are supporting this anti-trans stuff get how much it impacts, but what is the impact that you see on yourself and your clients when people are out there talking about banning trans kids from sports or bathrooms or, you know, any of the other yeah. stuff? I mean, I don't know that I necessarily agree that they don't get the impact. I think that there is a way in which a lot of people in this country are turning to cruelty as a way to experience a sense of power in a time of powerlessness. And, you know, I saw a really interesting Twitter thread that talked about, you know, trying to point out the hypocrisy of you're working so hard at banning trans kids, but we won't do anything about guns. Well, to people in evangelical Christianity, if a kid dies, they go to heaven. That's great bonus. Like, so like, we don't need to worry about the guns part. It kind of sucks, but they'll be with God. Whereas if they're trans, they're going to go to hell. And that is way worse. So if they're gay or trans, we have to get that out of there. The guns, I mean, they'll go to heaven. It'll suck for us. We'll be very sad, but they'll be with God. But the gay and trans, horrible. And I think that, you know, there's this way for years, people have talked about that there are certain aspects of the political right where the cruelty is the point. And I think that that is very much where it is here. They have found a reliable wedge issue, which is trans rights that can give them an in to limiting the rights of queer people and into limiting the rights of people they perceive to be women who can also be non-binary and trans men, but like they consider us all to be women anyway. And they just want to establish white supremacist Christo-fascism. And the impact on trans folks is that most of us are fucking disasters right now. It is Mm -hmm. like the number of times I've sat in a session with my therapist and just been like, I don't know what the fuck to do with this. Like, this is horrifying. There are states that are trying to ban transition to age 25 that would medically detransition people who are already legal adults getting medical care. There are fucking Texas investigating the families of people where the trans kid is like 23 now, mm-hmm. but they're still going to investigate them for allowing their child to access healthcare before the age of 18. I mean, I don't, 
when I moved across the country last summer, we did a road trip and I felt a little nervous about things, but like now I don't know that I would drive through Texas anymore because like, I don't really pass as a cishet, like maybe like in places where there is a lot of deep denial, like the deeply conservative places often are really good at pretending people are cishet, right? So like maybe they would see me that way, but like I have my side shave. I've been on tea for a couple of years. I don't shave anything on like armpits or legs or anything. I shave my, like my head gets shaved, but like not, yeah. <laughs> not girl regions. And, you know, I wear a lot of rainbow shit. I don't, I don't pass. And so going through those areas makes me nervous. You know, I have an amazing business coach who I've worked with for years, who I love. And she does a retreat every year. That's three days of like looking at what you want your next year to be like, and it's business planning, but it's also like life planning and like exploration of self. It's like the favorite thing that I go to every year for my business. And it's being held this year in Nashville. And I am nervous as fuck about going because Nashville is probably okay, but Tennessee absolutely the fuck is not. And even within blue cities, there's still a lot of fucking bigots. And it every trans client I have, every non-binary client I have, even if they live in places like California, they're freaked out. A lot of us are figuring out, can we leave this country? Can we go somewhere else? Because it is not safe for us here. Um, I'm personally looking into whether I can leave the country because I don't, I don't think this gets better anytime soon. I think it gets a lot, lot worse first. And if I can get to another country and find a way to like help other people get out and be a landing pad for people somewhere that is friendlier, I would much rather do that. Yeah. And you talk about things getting worse. And one of the things that hasn't gotten too much attention outside of black lives matter movement leaders is the fact that this week, the Supreme court issued a decision, a six, three decision that even if you are innocent, that is not enough to reject the death penalty. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole, like you can't appeal to the federal court, even if you have clear exculpatory evidence. So like, if you have incompetent representation too bad, you're going to die. It's just (laughs) the Supreme court decisions that have come down this season are horrifying just over and over horrifying, just like bad, bad, bad. There's a very occasional good one, but mostly it is just horror after horror. (laughs) Yeah. And for, for those of us who have like my background is in con law. That was one of my focuses in grad school. Like you see the writing on the wall and it is. Oh yeah. The the reasoning that Alito used for that draft opinion puts into question Griswold, which is birth control, puts into question Lawrence, which is anti-sodomy laws, puts into question all kinds of laws about like women being able to do anything without the permission of their husbands. Like it is hugely impactful in terms of what it could change in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And so I get the, the desire to flee, unfortunately, especially for so many trans folks, I know just the financial cost of yeah. legally getting out of the country is astronomical. Um, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Depending on where you're going, like the places that you can go to that are relatively cheap are often less friendly to trans folks. And the places yep. you can go that are very friendly to trans folks are often less cheap. And if you have disabilities that gets complicated too, because if countries have nationalized healthcare, a lot of times, if you have a certain degree of disability, they don't want you there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm lucky in that my my monthly army disability pay that I get for being 80% disabled by the military uh-huh. uh, is enough that for a country like Portugal, I can get a visa based on like 
it's like a, it's a visa intended for like retirees or people with some sort of passive income that comes in and it allows you to work. And so I could establish a company there, which then would give me the ability to hire people. Right. So a lot of those of us who have means and the ones that I know who are looking at this are trying to figure out how they can use the privilege that they have and the resources that they have to pave easier pathways for people who don't have that, right? Or like if I move to a place like Portugal, the cost of living in Portugal is significantly less expensive than here, even in Philadelphia, right? And so I can save money and use that as like a kitty to help other people get out of the United States, right? I think that there are ways that we can, because I see this often boiled down to if you leave, you're using your privilege and that's bad versus if you stay and fight, that's good. And I don't think that it's as binary as that. I think that- there are valid reasons to stay. There are valid reasons to leave. I think we need to, especially with people who have various degrees of marginalization, find ways to support each other in making decisions that are right for us mm-hmm. and figure out how, if we are taking advantage of our privilege, we're not like pulling up the ladder after us, but finding ways to continue extending it and building it stronger. Yeah. And I, I see a lot of folks with some degree of privilege, but still where you intersect with various forms of marginalization looking to do that because- we know what's coming. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we all see what's coming. And I, I, the inability to change it is so hard to sit with because for a while, I think, especially for those of us who are a little older and over 40 and all of that, we had a period of time where it felt like we were making progress. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think things have changed. So when we're doing this interview, we're coming into pride month. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, so pride has taken on so many different flavors in, in our lifetime. You're a little younger than me, but in our lifetime, it's taken on so many different yeah. flavors. How are you looking at pride this year? I mean, pride during COVID is very complicated. Last year, pride was less complicated for me because numbers were going down. Right. We had vaccines, like shit was pretty good. Right. And so I was able to like go to a pride dance party and like be out there. And this year there's a huge fucking surge in COVID cases. Nobody is wearing masks. So I'm probably going to do nothing for pride. Um, but you know, I, I have already waded into the yearly discourse of kink at pride. Uh, and I think that there's this weird trend among younger folks that is like hugely sex negative, uh, like hugely and profoundly sex negative in a way that infuriates me. Like I try to find empathy and sympathy for them as much as I can, but like y'all do not appreciate how hard queers have fought for the last 50 fucking years so that we could be as gay the fuck as we want in public. And that includes our kinky friends. That includes all the weird shit that we do. That includes nudity. That like pride was never intended to be this family-friendly picnic. It was intended to be a fucking riot to protest sex negativity, to protest the policing of sexual expression, to protest the ways in which people are restrained based on whether or not they fit larger societal frames. And so when we replicate that within our own communities with this idea of like, well, but if we're like the good queers then the fascists won't come for us, the fascists will still come for you. They'll just come for you after they get us radicals first. So like, I just, I'm so tired of this weird neo-Puritan approach to, to queerness and this weird, like obsession with micro labels and like policing of labels and gatekeeping. Like if you're queer, you're queer. I don't need to check your credentials. Like there's no test to determine if you're queer enough. Like if you want to consider yourself bisexual, you're bi. If you're, 
if you've never dated anyone of a particular gender, you can still be queer. Like it doesn't fucking matter. We need to stop trying to tear each other apart over this. Like we need to find ways to support each other in our, in our fight against this shitty ass oppressive system that wants us all to be good little six cishet Barbie dolls. And like, it's just, it's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> the sex negativity kills me too. Cause I was at a time where, when I started celebrating pride, the joke was it was like 12 people and we said, yay. And we ran around the block really fast and back to somebody's house for a fucking brunch because that's right. as safe as we were. Right. And this, this corporate sponsorship, major dance parties, family friendly stuff is so not what it was. And it's, those- and it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's good and bad, right? Like I right. saw a really great Twitter thread talking about how, you know, in, in the before times that many of these youths were not even alive for places wouldn't take your gay money. Like you couldn't buy a house through a lot of different lenders because they wouldn't take your money. If you were queer, if you went to shops and you looked queer, they would kick you out. And so like the first time that target was like, Hey, we support gays. Like, you know, that was a bold fucking stance to take. And that's why I don't care that they do like corporate pride shit because they took an early stance supporting queer people. And mm-hmm. I will buy the fuck out of their pride shit. Ironically, wearing a Target pride <laughs> tank top right now from last year's collection. I'm going to buy the fuck out of this year's collection too. Um, and pride is not supposed to be about Bank of America handing out rainbow pins, right? No. Like it's, I think that it's so much of, of everything these days. I'm like, well, we need to find balance and nuance, Right. I think that letting corporations pay queers money is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Letting them show off for paying queers money, less fantastic, right? So like, let the, let the big corporations sponsor the parade, put all their names on a banner at the start of the parade, and then put actual queers in the parade, not floats from Bank of America, right? Right. Or like, if you want to have a family-friendly pride event, please do that. But like, Mm -hmm. main pride is not that. Main pride is for the, the fucking badass queerdo radicals who want to do whatever the fuck they want. And here's the thing. If your kid hasn't seen a naked body yet, what, how is that even possible? Do they have a body? If they've seen a body, seeing other naked bodies should be fine. It's just naked bodies. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And like so much of this is framed as like fear of penises. And I just, I cannot even explain how upsetting that is because it is like at the root of trans misogyny and Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) <laughs> so much to this, like, but the penises, I should never have to see a penis. Well, that's, a, that's a trans misogyny talking point. And maybe we should unpack that if you're part of this queer community, right? Like so many of the arguments that are used by these generally very young people are like exactly the same points that were used against us by conservatives back when I came out in like 1999. Mm-hmm. It's just, <laughs> it's exhausting. It's fucking exhausting. And like, I want a pride that is about celebrating the weird, rich, funky, sexual or not sexual nature of all of us. Like I want mm-hmm. a pride to be about us and and how weird and not normal we are. And if you're a normal queer, that's cool too. But like, it shouldn't be, there are tons of places to spaces to go if you're a normal queer. Right. If you are not a normal queer, there are far, few, far fewer places to go. If you fit into mainstream, good for you if that's what's right for you. But like we need spaces that center those of us who do not and do not want to. I don't want to fucking assimilate. I don't. Right. It's not appealing to me. <laughs> no, I've never wanted to pass, right? Because it is so core to my identity and and my struggle. Like the idea of passing as a cis hat is just 
it's something I've had to explain, especially to my partner who happens to be like, I never intended to follow, fall in love with a cishet man. Like this is so, it's a good thing. He's as great as he is. Cause right. But, I get uh, it. I get it. But it's just really, men can be a lot for a queer. They really are. And the more, the more I know, the less I understand that whole genre. Um, <laughs> people can't yeah. see, but we're both just like, yeah, it's just, it's just they're a special. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to not stand in, to celebrate who the fuck we are at our core, because it's not the two lesbians with an adopted kid living in a white picket fence with a dog that scares people. Right. No, it's not Neil Patrick Harris and his cute husband. It's not Ellen and Portia. They're fine with those folk, right? (laughs) Those people are fine. The people that scare them are the weirdos out on the margins who like (laughs) refuse to be in their normal ass culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and give me fucking gay leather dykes any day. Like I will. Yes. I, my, my heart lies with, with leather dykes and dykes on bikes. My bucket list is to ride with the dykes on bikes and the the parade on on the back of the but they're amazing. Yeah. But I think you bring up a really critical point that's been lost in almost every political debate in the last 10 years is we lack nuance. We cannot have nuance anymore. There's such yeah. a drive for certainty and broad strokes. Um, well, and clear boundaries and clear, like clear categorizations. And a lot of times that's not possible. Like people ask all the time, what's the difference between bi and pan? And I'm like, I don't know. Some people like different terms, right? Like theoretically pan doesn't care about gender by likes many genders, right. but like in practice, I don't see a ton of difference actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I tell people that pan is, it's not that I'm sexually attracted to cookware, but I will fuck you for a full set of Le Creuset in, in French crack. Oh my God. Who wouldn't? I'm just <laughs> saying like, I've got my Le Creuset uh, crock pot up there in the beautiful cobalt blue, that color. Oh, <laughs> gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, there, there's, there's no room for nuance. And in our debates, we've lost room for nuance. And I think that's part of what makes processing this also hard is because most of us live much more nuanced than we're allowed to express. When everything happens online where we're under character limitations and without tone and body language and misinterpretation is so easy. And coming back to the start, right? We're all fucking traumatized right now, which means that we are all already ready to attack, right? Our limbic systems are primed already, which makes us want to be more angry. You know, I read recently, We Will Not Cancel Us by Adrienne Marie Brown, Mm -hmm. and it is fantastic. If you haven't read it, you should. It's short and it is so inspiring. And in it, she talks a lot about this way that it seems like initially in our communities, what we were looking to do is reduce harm. But now we go into these like feeding frenzies of like who we get to be mad at. And it's lost touch with what we're supposed to be aiming towards, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that we call people out is not so that we all get to bash them online. It's because they're doing harm and are refusing to respond in the other way, or we don't have another way to get to them. If what we're doing is calling people out so that we can all pile on and feel great and feel better about ourselves for it, like, what are we doing? We're increasing harm for no good reason. Yeah. Is there a way, you know, you spent your life studying the way people interact and deal with this. Are there any basic ways we start to find our way out of it? Or are we so deep in it right now? We just have to keep going. I mean, I think the answer to that depends on whether you're looking at micro or macro. 
I think on the micro level, what this is, is a lot of reaching out to each other, strengthening our bonds with each other, and then talking about this when it comes up in those groups. So like, if I have a friend who's like gleefully shitting all over someone online, I can reach out to them with a private message and be like, Hey, I just want to check in with you. Like, it seems like this person definitely did something that's bad, but I don't know how what you're doing is actually helping here. So can you like help me understand what you're going for? Right. Like how is this helping at this point? Right. Mm -hmm. And finding ways to reach out to each other and invite each other back into spaces that are based on our values. I think on community levels, we can work on that. I'm working right now on a project here in the Philly King community on helping to establish guidelines around handling conflict and consent incidents in communities and creating like consent. And I think that that's another way that we can help work on establishing nuance, like reminding people that like sometimes a person is hurt and the other person didn't actually do anything wrong. And like, we can address that harm and we don't have to make this other person a villain, right? Like mm-hmm. finding ways to like hold that as, as an example for others and to invite others into it with us on the macro level. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think that the more that we live as the example we wish to be, the easier it is to affect larger change. And I think especially right now, trying to affect macro change is just going to make you feel exhausted and useless and give up. I think right now, what where most of our energies may be better spent is on connecting with those around us, building community, deepening those bonds, and finding ways to help make change and growth within those places. And I think the, the other thing I'll say is that community is a word that we use in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. So like if we talk about the kink community, that's not actually a community. It's a very loosely associated group of people who happen to share an interest, right? It's not a community. There's no actual ties. There's no connection there. We don't owe anything to each other. Community is a thing where we have some kind of definite link that keeps us connected to each other or that we choose to keep connected to each other. When we're talking about changing these things, helping people be in nuance, helping reduce these strong reactions, that can only happen within community that is actual community. Online, I don't know. Like, I don't know that that's something that's super changeable because tempers flare and then it's too much, right? So I think when we're looking at affecting change, it's about building and strengthening local bonds, close bonds, people we're genuinely connected to and affecting change there. And I, I would strongly agree that there's something different in that that human face-to-face interaction where you, you I mean, Bob Putnam talks about it in Bowling Around Alone, the whole idea of social capital, right? The yeah. more you interact, the more you know each other, the more you're going to influence each other's behavior, right? Well, and co-regulation, you know, our nervous systems yeah. feed off of each other. When it's you alone with your phone and the internet, any like amp up that your nervous system does is going to go unchecked. Whereas if you're with other people who aren't apping up with you, who are like, Hey, can you help us understand mm-hmm. like what's going on here? That's going to help bring you back into regulation as well. Exactly. Exactly. And I think so much of that has been, you know, we've lost that with the pandemic because we haven't been able mm-hmm. to be there with, and it, it's made it so much worse. Yeah. And it just, it makes all of it harder. Um, yeah. So where do you, all of this work is really important and really necessary and really fucking exhausting. Um, yes. So how do you replenish? Uh, I have a therapist I see every week. Uh, 
So that's, that's great. I have an adorable dog. Her name is Jojo. She's a French bulldog, Boston terrier mix. And she is napping in her bed right now, but internally very upset because where she wants to be at all times is in my lap. (laughs) So now that I have an office chair in which she cannot be in my lap, she's very upset with me a lot of the time. I'm also trying to keep just building community here and like build the things that I wish that we had so that I don't have to continue to carry it alone forever, right? Create Mm -hmm. communities of people who share these values, create committees of people who want to help implement them so that it's not a solo thing. It's about ways that we decide to share this labor together and move towards it together. Yeah. Yeah. No, you got to have other help carry the burden because it's, it's too much for any of us. Um, well, and I also love trashy TV. That's the other thing. Like, I fucking <laughs> love trashy TV. I'm watching my way back through True Blood right now because I watch True Blood every couple years because it's so good. Yeah. And I'm in the season where Eric has amnesia, and amnesia Eric is perhaps the most fuckable TV character ever. Like, <laughs> oh my God, the shit I would do with amnesia Eric. I'm just saying, like, I would fuck regular Eric too, but amnesia Eric and I would have a good fucking time. I would peg the fuck out of him. I'm just saying, he would love it. You know, he loves it. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I got to give a salute to Trashy TV because I have one of the great things about this podcast is people will tell me what they're watching and then I have a reason to like go watch other trash. Like I have gotten sucked into Empire. I've been binging Empire because oh, it is so, I so Empire for a while. And then I like lost it for a bit. I think I ran out of what was on Hulu and then I just never went back. Um, but God, that show. Oh, oh, it is like quintessential soap opera. Oh my God. It is. It is absolutely a soap. Like hundred percent of soap. Well, and I love the fact that Eileen Jacob is the producer of it, who did uh, L Word, because I think L Word was she cut her teeth on soap dramas. And oh, L Word was is... absolutely a fucking soap. Oh my god, especially the last Jenny two seasons. Jenny Schechter, fucking Jenny Schechter. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> Just, uh. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> yes, no, there's, there's great things for trashy TV. I believe in putting your brain on hold and watching trash TV. Um, yeah. Or like uplifting TV. Like I've also been rewatching Steven Universe and like oh, there yeah. is nothing that is better for your mood than watching Steven Universe because it's a whole fucking show about people working through conflicts in ways that are about caring for each other. Right. In mm-hmm. fact, at the end of We Will Not Cancel Us, Adrian Marie Brown recommends Steven Universe as one of her resources because it is all awesome. about handling conflicts in other ways oh that's awesome that's awesome yeah and and i am a a animation fan through and through if people listen to the other podcasts that i'm on um the the real poetry section of iambic poetry podcast where we review poetry movies any animation film i've given higher higher ratings to except mulan because mulan 2020 fucking sucks <sighs> oh i didn't um, see the mulan 2020 oh we have a why, running fuck mulan you? but um why, yeah why would you I'm just say <laughs> I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen any of the Disney live action remakes. No, they're not worth it. They're not worth it. That's I I could tell they weren't going to be worth it. Like, no, thanks. (laughs) Good. Oh man. So if our, our guests want to find you, if they want to buy your merch, if they want to buy your books, if they want to support your audio work, what do we do? So my website is drlizpowell.com. It's got links to everything. 
my merch in particular, it is newly out. It is super cute stuff, all kinds of stickers and pins and awesome things. And that is drlizpowell.com slash shop. I also have an Indiegogo going, which will be closing, I think, fairly shortly after this comes out, but should still be going on uh, when this comes out. Uh, and I'll send uh, you the link for that. Cause trying to say the link, it's just a lot. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Liz Powell. And my Patreon is patreon.com slash Dr. Liz. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And now a moment of gratitude. I'm grateful for a few things. I am grateful for my amazing designer, Tracy Lay, who made me the cutest fucking merch ever. Uh, I'm grateful to my dog, Jojo, who is the best little life companion I could have. Uh, And I'm also very grateful for psychiatric medication. I'm on Concerta and Wellbutrin right now. And like, thank science for psych meds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.